Well, good morning, and uh, good to see you here. And if I haven't met you before, my, my name is Brian Habig, and I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. And we are going to wrap up our study of David this morning as King David. We've been in the historic books of the Old Testament, like First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. There's a lot of overlap of those books about the life of David, but we're going to finish up in Ezekiel. So uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the, in the uh, order of service there. We're going to be in Ezekiel 34 and 37. Um, I'm, uh, I'm reading the sixth Harry Potter book right now. I, I have these last two that I hadn't read yet, so I'm going to read this one and maybe the seventh one this summer. Half-Blood Prince. And it struck me as I'm reading this that I think for 21st century readers, young and old, that, that there's a lot of Britishisms that you learn through reading Harry Potter. You know, like uh, that we say something's awesome and they'll say something's brilliant. Or they talk about butterbeer and, you know, that's not, we don't talk about butterbeer a lot. But uh, I think for latter 20th century readers, and I was one of these, um, I learned a lot of Britishisms through the Narnia stories in C.S. Lewis. And um, you know, we talk about these English kids, and they would make their way into this world of, of Narnia, and you just kind of picked up expressions they used or things they talked about or terms or whatever. But I remember in one of the Narnia stories, I, I heard a reference. It's the first time I'd ever heard this, and I've heard it since. But it's in the third Narnia story. It's the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And toward the beginning, it talks about that these children from our world who had been to Narnia before went back to England. And then after a short time, they came back into Narnia, but even though a little bit of time had passed here, a lot of time had passed in Narnia. And that's how time works in Narnia. And, uh, and Lewis is sort of explaining it to the reader. And he says, it would be like uh, King Arthur coming back in our day, as some say he will. And then Lewis says in parentheses, and I say the sooner the better. And I'd never heard, when I first read that, I never heard that before that. I learned that through the Narnia stories, that part of the Arthur legend is that Arthur would come back, or at least some strains of that legend said that Arthur would come back. And I want you to think about that in this passage, something actually, number one, more outlandish, if I can use that word, but actually true, is being predicted. Uh, it's the return of the golden king. You know, Arthur whether there was a real Arthur or not, or whether he was based on somebody real or not. You know, he was, a, he was the good king. He was flawed, but he was, he was the good king. And the dream would be like, wow, what if someone that together, what if somebody that noble, what if that, someone that stabilizing could come and make things right? This is a prophecy. This comes about four, in round numbers, about 400 years after David died. Um, this would be... Uh, around 600 B.C., 550 or 600 B.C. And it's a prophecy that the great golden king that we've been studying is actually going to come back. All right, Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 15. And one important note before I read. The recipients of this prophecy, the people that Ezekiel was speaking to, they live in exile uh, God's people have been taken to Babylon because of their idolatry, because of their disobedience, their hard hearts. They've been taken 
under Nebuchadnezzar into the Babylonian exile. So they're not hearing this in their own land. They're not in the promised land. They're in Babylon. So they dream of getting home. Uh, The temple either has been or is about to be destroyed. So they would dream of getting back and worshiping not in a pagan temple, but in their temple, getting back to their land and being home again. Ezekiel 34. The Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Then verse 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Chapter 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you say in the Psalms that you remember that we are dust. And we could all say what that means to us this morning, whether that means um, weakness or discouragement or preoccupation or just fatigue now that it's May. But please open us up to you. Uh, We know that you are speaking, but please open us up to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A friend of mine, who is a very uh, smart friend of mine, I quote him from time to time because he says cool things. He's a very smart friend of mine, but he's he's deceptively smart. He's kind of folksy smart, so you don't realize how how smart he really is. He was talking with um, a peer of his in his church, and they were talking about this man's daughter, I believe she was college age. She was getting serious with the guy and uh, just head over heels in love with this guy, really enamored with him. And that she, apparently she did this a lot with guys, kind of put her eggs in the, the man basket. And uh, anyway, so this guy said to, uh, to my friend, he said, you know, I just, I get really nervous that my daughter just thinks that really the way life is going to be fixed is that one day a prince is going to ride in on a white horse and he's going he's gonna to make everything okay. And my friend's response uh, surprised me. He said, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm kind of banking everything on the fact that that's exactly what's going to happen. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, and I I actually read from this passage a few weeks ago as we were looking at David that almost at the end of the Bible, way deep into Revelation, there's this image of the risen Jesus Christ riding in literally on a white horse, or metaphorically on a, on a white horse, and waging war against his enemies. 
and establishing his people and bringing them home with him. And there was just something about that story that struck me. I, I, I mean, I think in particular that I just I don't think like that most of the time. Because here's the thing, and this might be like stating the obvious, but I don't know that it's so obvious. The Bible ends for the believer with a happy ending. And I wonder how much we even believe that such a thing exists. Like for a story to end with, and they lived happily ever after, that could actually be true. And something that we talk about on a fairly regular basis is that all of us, whatever theological, even if you don't think of yourself as being theological, you have a theology. And you think about how God and real life interact. And all of us have kind of like an official on paper theology, but then the real one, like the real heart belief. Officially, I'm not assuming this is you, but like the people in this room who would say, yeah, I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that it's God's Word. I do believe the gospel. We officially believe that the end of the story is a happy ending. However, for most of us, the way we're actually doing life is you better accumulate it now or you're not going to have it. You better purchase it now or go do it now or consume it now or it's not going to happen. You better go on that trip, or you're never going to go to that place. You better experience that in this life, because this is the only life. And life is too short. That's kind of how we do life. And don't really live in the light of, you know what? All of us are mortal. The mortality rate in this room is 100%. That we are going to die. And then there is this massive thing on the other side of it. Whatever your spiritual viewpoints are, all of us will die. And there's this massive reality on the other side of it that makes this one pale in comparison, at least for size. This is a prophecy from Isaiah. And this is kind of a weird way, I think, to end a study of David. But I wanted to end with a prophecy that he comes back. And it's not just that he comes back. It's the promise of a happy ending for David's people. So let's look at what this means. Let's try to unpack this. Let's look at the prophecy and then some mysteries in it and then the fulfillment. Okay? The prophecy itself, just the basics, and then some mysteries and then the fulfillment. The prophecy itself. And I mentioned this. This is uh, given, this prophecy, through Ezekiel. When God's people are in Babylon, so they're not, they're not sitting around Jerusalem when they hear this, or, or the outlying areas. They're in a pagan nation, way out of their element. They are experiencing God's displeasure for lots of bad kings, and lots of bad rulers, and lots of idol worship, and hard-heartedness. And they had received many, 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 many warnings, and they hardened their hearts. They were taken into exile. So they get this. This is about 400 years after David. And that's a long time. You think about how long ago the early 1600s are. This country is not even 250 years old yet. 400 years later, God says, I'm going to do something. And it's interesting. If, if you read this whole chapter of 34, we didn't have room to put it all in the bulletin. But if you read it, God starts talking about his displeasure with the shepherds. 
Now, who's he talking about? Is he, is he talking about people that actually keep sheep for a living? He's talking about leaders of God's people. He's talking about kings, other officials, even what we would call clergy. They're the shepherds of God's people. And he says this, you should have been the people that sought out the lost sheep. The sheep wanders off, you're responsible to go find the lost sheep. But you didn't do that. If one is wounded to bind up the wounds, if one uh, is, uh, is threatened or in danger to protect the sheep, and for all of them, as they are hungry, to feed them. But you haven't done that. You have fed yourselves. And it's, it's an indictment. So then what does God say? I'm going to send David back. And he calls him my servant David. And I, I, that's, that's kind of a magical way to say it, if I can, if I can put it that way. God calls different people in the Bible his servant, but, but he keeps saying, my servant, David, my servant, David. That's the way he talked about people like Moses and Abraham. These, these are people who are at just game-changing moments in the history of God's people. And he says, my King David, and David was, as we have seen, he was flawed. He had his problems. But he was the, king, he was the golden king. He, he was Israel's Arthur. I'm going to send him back to you to be a shepherd king. He will rule. He'll, he calls him king, calls him prince. But he is not going to be like these other kings. Um, I, I heard someone recently share about, uh, as a dad, with his family, they'll have a you know, time where they'll read the Bible together and um, pray and maybe sing a song. And so, He's just been reading sort of straight through the Bible, and he hit kind of the stuff that we've been studying, and then afterward, it was just king after king after king, and they're just bad, and they're bad, and they're bad, and they're bad, and they disobey, and they do horrible stuff. And one of his kids just finally went, Ugh, when are we going to get through with these kings? They're horrible. And I think the prophets would have said, I know, I know, they are. God would have said. that They are supposed to depict me what I'm like, to my people, in their care, in their kindness, in their justice, in their rule. And they, they are not. They look out for themselves. So I'm going to send my servant, David, to be the shepherd king. Ruler, feeder. Prince, servant. And just before I press on, okay, that's kind of the basics of the prophecy. But before I press on, I, I do want you to think about this. When you hear all this Old Testament lingo that I'm using, I mean, like, I'm just throwing, just throwing all this stuff at you, like Ezekiel and priests and shepherds and all that kind of stuff. You can kind of tune out, which you may have already done. I want you to think about our present political moment, upon which I will give no comment or opinions. But I want you to think about our political moment. I mean, could anything drive it home more starkly how difficult it is to, I'm going to use the biblical verb, shepherd a massive group of people. Like, how do you get the old and the young and those in between to come around one leader and say, I trust that person enough, not only to follow them, but to kind of buy in so that increasingly we are stabilized? Who can do it? Who that more and more identifies with like, uh, a progressive view of things, and those who identify with a more conservative, old-fashioned view of things, 
how do they rally around one leader? And that is not a new problem. That is an old problem. And the people who are getting this prophecy, they have really, they've, they've had their world upended because they're in another country. You think about if, if your whole community, your whole culture was abducted and relocated to another nation for an extended time, what would happen? We would forget things about our lives. We would forget things about here. We would assimilate. And so that even if we came back to where we were from, we would have changed. Well, once we've changed, who can hold all these loose strings together? It's, I mean, it's an incredible thing to prophesy that one, and God is adamant, one shepherd. My servant David will be the one shepherd when I send him back. All right, that's the prophecy. So what are the mysteries? And I would say there's at least three mysteries, maybe more. But let's just look at three. I want to look at two first and hold off on the third one. Here's the first one. And I don't know if you caught this when I was reading. God starts off and he's just adamant that I'm going to be the shepherd. Could not be more adamant. Look at the beginning of the passage. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. You get the point. So then right on the heels of him saying that, what does he say? Look at the next part. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And he just got through saying, I, myself, will be their shepherd. I will do the feeding. And then he says, David will be their shepherd. He'll be the one shepherd, and he'll do the feeding. Which is it? And then look at this one. Here's, here's another mystery. Look down at the, the last paragraph there. And find verse 25, he talks about the people dwelling in the land. And then it says this at the end of verse 25, And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Now, some Jewish scholarship understood that to mean, I guess when we come out of exile, God is going to bring us back to the land and the, the reign of David, like through his descendants, will resume. So these men who are descended from David, that, that will start back and the kingdom will be united again. But I'm, this is, I'm going to get, get a little uh, teachy on you here. There's a great Jewish scholar who lived about a thousand years ago. His name was Solomon ben Isaac, but he goes by Rashi. Rashi is like the man in Jewish biblical scholarship. And Rashi, as a devout Jew, said this, that has to be talking about the Messiah. No normal descendant of David could do the things that are described in these passages. This must be talking about King Messiah. So what is the fulfillment? Because if you're wondering, so is Jesus the fulfillment Yes. Yes, he is. Let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. Of course he is. No, no, no one else could, could live up to this, but, but there's a little twist to it, all right? Jesus comes, and think about this. This passage talks about the dwelling place of God is going to be with his people. They're going to live with him. He's going to live with them. Now, if you were in exile... 
pagan temples, and you can't get to the temple. And probably by the time you got this prophecy, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians. What you would understand is that I guess we're going to go back to the land. I guess we're going to rebuild the temple, and that that will be God's house again. Well, the people did come out of exile. They did go back to the promised land. They did build the second temple. The first one was built by Solomon. They built a second, less great temple. But here's what you might not know. Before there was the temple, where did God's presence live? The tabernacle, the tent. And when they built the tabernacle, just the way God said to build it, when they, when they finished it and dedicated it, the glory of the Lord descended and filled the tabernacle so that the priest couldn't even go in it. Moses couldn't go in it. They get to the promised land. Solomon builds the temple. And when they finish it and they dedicate it, the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the house so that the priest can't even go in it. Same thing happens again. But when the people came out of the Babylonian exile and they built the second temple and they dedicated it to the Lord, there's no record of that happening. And so that temple is there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And about 600 years later, Jesus makes a scene in it. He makes a scene in the second temple. You can read this in John chapter 2. And he says to the people around him, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And what do they think? They think he's nuts. And they say, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And John says, but he was talking about what? His body. That Jesus, even though they couldn't understand it, was saying the dwelling place of God is with men again, but it's not in a building. The fullness of God is with you because I'm here. Fullness of God is in your midst because I am in your midst. And he says things like, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The thieves, the false shepherds, they run when the wolves come. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then, of course, he ends up doing that. And he rises from the dead. And he ascends into heaven. And then he does this. He sends the Holy Spirit upon his people. And the Holy Spirit then doesn't just operate around, but inhabits, indwells the people of God. Meaning what? That the temple has gone from building to Jesus to what? To us. That we've become the temple. And let me ask you this. If we are now the temple of God, has everything in the prophecy come true? Listen to it again. Look at, look at the end of chapter 37, that last paragraph. I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Is that how life feels to you? That this prophecy has come true? Are the people of God now living in our land with God in our midst, and we're safe, and we're secure, 
and we're close to Him forever. Is that our experience? You know, when Sandra McCracken played here Friday night, and you know what? I think in 11 years, I've never said this phrase, but if you weren't there, you missed it. She was really good. And what, she was talking about a hymn called Hail to the Lord's Anointed, Great David's Greater Son. And when she, when she was kind of expl- setting up the song, she said, we, meaning people that believe God's Word, we believe that history is linear. It's not cyclical. But history is linear, and our story is headed somewhere. All right. Where does the David story and the temple story, where does it head? And you've got to go all the way to the end of the Bible. And I, I want you to hear how almost the, the final page of the Bible virtually quotes the prophecy from Ezekiel. Look in the italic passage there, and it says this. This is a description of after the great judgment when God's people are brought to him, he gathers them to himself, and he, he establishes himself in their midst. And he, here's how it's described. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And that refrain, by the way, is from Genesis to Revelation. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is what the Bible is about. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And here's how Revelation ends. For the person who believes that happy endings cannot exist that happy endings are for kids or for the naive, for that person, finally, they get what they wanted. The person who believes that no happy ending can exist finally has a tragic ending. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But for the person who actually, just in the most frail fumbling kind of way, takes God at His word that your son, son of God, son of man, son of David, came and did what I could not do for myself. That by him doing that, he has not only redeemed my body, and he hasn't just redeemed my soul, and he hasn't just redeemed all his people but he has redeemed the entire cosmos. And that at the end, he turns the entire cosmos into the Holy of Holies. And he pronounces to a group of people who have given him every reason in the world to be frustrated. He says to the whole universe, my dwelling place is with my people. And they live with me and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you, th- do you think that I'm... Am I telling you something that's true? Because the prophets and the apostles and Jesus say it's true. 
that the future of the person who trusts in the son of David, and who knows what this is going to look like, is to be able to come to him and be close to him and to kneel before him or sit near him and somehow for him to show us that all the pain and all the disease and all the abuse and all the addiction, all the psychological damage, all the poverty, all the wars, he has made sense of it all. And all things have been made new. And that God's people are finally home. Like, if, if you're someone here who has known God for any length of time, and you get this weird feeling that's growing inside of you that I just can't give myself over to certain things like I used to. I don't feel as at home in this world as I used to. That's supposed to happen. And we heard David say this last week. We are strangers. We are exiles. We are moving toward death. This is not our home. A great reality lies on the other side. But for those who trust in Christ, it is a happy ending and the shoe never drops. Like that's so good, it might should freak you out a little bit. bit. As some people who've been here have heard me say before, I've never been to a party that was so good, I never wanted to leave it. I've never been to a trip that was so good that I just want to like live there forever and ever Our minds can't conceive of something being so good that we don't want it to terminate. What it would take would be for everything your heart craves to be fulfilled and to know that nothing's going to ruin it. And that's the ending. Um, There's a book I've quoted from before called Christianity is Jewish. It's by Edith Schaefer. If you've ever heard the name Francis Schaefer, um, he was her husband. In the, in the 1940s, right after World War II, she was asked by um, a women's Bible study group in St. Louis to teach on the day, of the day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so she had done her own study, but she thought, you know, there's a Jewish community here in town. I have some Jewish friends. I've never asked them what they think about Yom Kippur, what do they know about it. So she approached a friend, said, can you tell me what you've been taught, what you think about it? And she said, well, I, I don't know much about it, but I have a friend, I think, who could tell you more about it. Gave her a name and address, and so Edith Schaefer went to go visit this woman, never met her. Rings the doorbell, and this grown woman comes to the door. She kind of awkwardly tells her why she's there, and she said, you know, you should talk to my father. He, He would know about these kinds of things. And so this elderly man comes out. It's her father. He's Austrian in the state. Now, picture 1947, so um, maybe lost people in the Holocaust. And, uh, and so he talks to her about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and it's fascinating. And then he says, you know, the way that you're interacting with us is lovely. And this is not our normal experience. Why are you talking to us this way? And she said, well, I could tell you why I'm doing that, but I'd have to explain to you my view of the Bible. Are you willing for me to do that? And he said, yes. She said, I would have to cover from the beginning to the end, and it might take hours. Are you willing to do that? And he said, yes. Like, no one does this. So Edith Schaefer says that she and and this man and the daughter sit down in the stairwell of their house. They just sit on these steps. And Edith Schaefer told the story of redemption. Like beginning from Genesis 
all the way. Well, when she hit the New Testament, she paused and said, are you okay if I go on? They said, go on, go on, keep going. All the way to Revelation, and here's what happens. When I finished, and the heavenly city had been described, and the whole story had come to its climax, the old Austrian Jew sighed a deep sigh, and turning his head to look up at his daughter, he said, Daughter, have you ever heard anything so beautiful? No, Father, I never have. Then the father turned his head to look down at me, and he said, For 30 years I've been a dentist in this city. For 30 years I have had Gentile patients. Why has no one ever told me all this before? That she, she did not walk into his house and tell him another story. She came into his house and told him his own story to the end. And it went deep into his heart. And, and I, I don't know that I'm right, but here, here would be my theory. I think the reason the Gentile patients had never told him that is because of what Jesus said. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That we don't talk about the happy ending much because we want to show everybody that we're not naive and that we're, we're realists. But it doesn't fill the heart. And you know, like God wants this to fill our hearts. Yes, be realistic. No, don't be naive. But that one day he is going to change everything. Do you believe in the son of David? Do you believe in David's greater son? He, God sent him to secure a happy ending. If you will trust him, he will redeem your body and your soul. This whole world and you don't have to fear death. Amen. Let's pray together. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.